Welcome to Pyramid to Circles. This podcast is for the leaders and the change makers who have the goal of evolving their company, their department, their team towards more collective intelligence, more empowerment, more self-organization. But uh, they're asking themselves how to make this happen and where to start and how to get inspiration from others. So today, I have the great pleasure to receive Flora Bernard. Flora, welcome. Hello, Michael. Hello, everyone. Laura, let me introduce you before uh, I have a lot of questions for you. And please correct me or complete me if I'm wrong. Uh, so Flora, you are an author and a TED speaker, uh, and you believe that philosophy can help leaders better think the change and better lead it. And I had the chance to work with you and see your impact on the management team not long ago. And I felt and I saw how your imp approach is imp impactful. And although philosophy could look like a bit old school, I, I really saw how actually it is very innovative, how your approach is innovative. And I really loved uh, the way you invite people to explore and articulate their ideas, their thinking. And, um, and the way you do that, you, I saw how you help people grow their own self-awareness as you do that. Um, so uh, the way you use philosophy creates a path to, to reasoning in a group. And I think reasoning is a key to build collective intelligence. We had in a podcast in the last episode, James Priest is the founder of Sociocracy 3.0. And uh, James um, explained the importance of bringing forward reason of a power in the decision-making. Um, If in a group we learn how to use a reason, we will have more collective intelligence, we will have better decisions, etc. So a few words about you. You have a very international life path. You lived in several countries, in particular in the UK. You actually graduated from the London School of Economics. And uh, maybe that, that life path in, uh, that is international created in you this openness, this sense of universal, uh, your interest for human beings. And that maybe led you to philosophy. I don't know, you'll tell us about that. You're also the co-founder of a philosophy agency called Thai that is based in Paris. And your mission in Thai is to help business, businesses think about what they do and why they do it within a philosophical approach. And before that, you worked in sustainable development for 15 years. You helped corporation integrate environmental and social issues in their business strategy. And you define yourself as a sociologist by training, but a philosopher at heart. So that's for the introduction. So um, my, my first question to you really would be, why taking the time to think and why taking the time to discuss philosophically about work issues? Why is it not a waste of time? And why on the contrary, it is actually a great investment that most of the leaders should do. Mm. Tell us about that. Well, I think that the first thing I'd like to share is uh, a few words about what philosophy actually means. Um, because I know that when I say the word, um, a lot of thoughts come to mind. And maybe you mentioned uh, the idea that it was maybe, it could be seen as um, old school. I think in most minds, a lot of people see it maybe as theoretical or abstract. And so they associate uh, philosophy with that, at least especially in, uh, in, in France. Um, what I want to say is that we 
we shouldn't forget that uh, during ancient Greece, philosophy was very practical and philosophy um, helped uh, everyone lead a better life. I mean, that was what the Stoics uh, wanted to do with philosophy. That was what Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, that was what philosophy was uh, useful for. And so today I would say that philosophy in the workplace is useful to help lead a better life in the work in the workspace if you like what, what is philosophy what is philosophy why do i say that it's it's actually not that theoretical but that it's also practical um first of all i i i would like to i don't think it's it's very useful to make a distinction between theory and practice because theory gives light um, you know, on, on practice and practice also feeds into to theory. So both are, are constantly linked. And the second point I'd like to make is just give you a, a very quick definition of, for me, what it means to philosophize, because that's what I do with businesses. I help them philosophize on uh, work issues. And philosophizing is three things. It's questioning assumptions. It's reasoning as you mentioned earlier on, and it's also conceptualizing. Um, so questioning assumptions, that's exactly what Socrates used to do, you know, more than 2000 years ago. He went around talking to his, you know, fellow citizens and just asking them questions on why they thought what they thought. And he really invited them to question uh, the existing order of things questioning assumptions, questioning the way that things are usually done to see if you couldn't look at things in a different way. This is about questioning. Um, the second point about reasoning is, well, why do I think what I think? What are my arguments for thinking what I think? And reasoning for me is as much a personal exercise than it is an exercise that is to be done with other people. And it's true that today, when you think of a philosopher, first of all, you think of, a, of an old man with a, a white beard. <laughs> so I'm trying to uh, feminize and uh, uh, modernize, the, maybe. modernize the, the, the image of the philosopher. Yeah. But you also think of this person who's, you know, alone in his office, uh, you know, thinking and reading. Yeah, it's true. Philosophy is about that. But philosophy is also about discussing. It's because I will, it's because we talk together that I'm going to feed yeah. on your thoughts and you're going to feed on mine. And this is why it comes into leadership, collective intelligence teams. Exactly. And the third point um, is conceptualizing. Um, and what does that mean? That means, you know, asking yourself, what do the words that you use on an everyday basis, what, what do these words actually mean? Because the concepts that I use um, influence what I actually do. So for instance, I like using the example with a trust. What mm. I think of trust, my concept of trust directly impacts my way of giving and receiving trust. Mm. And in turn, my experience of trust you know, what I experience on a day-to-day -day basis feeds into my concept of trust. So these are the three things, uh, the three um, uh, philosophical postures, if you like, questioning, reasoning, conceptualizing, that I think are useful to managers and leaders, because it's basically taking a step back 
um, in relation to what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Hmm. When you, you, so you work with teams, you work with companies, um, what kind of challenge do they have when they call on you? What, what do you see? What do you meet? Well, there's various challenges. I guess that one of the main challenges is um, we have difficulty working together. This is one of the major challenges um, that teams have. So it's going to revolve around uh, cooperation, trust, management, um, that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of issues. And what do I do uh, to help them uh, get around this? Well, I facilitate um, philosophical workshops on these words precisely to get them to think um, about what cooperation or trust means. Um, you can't really see the, the gesture that I'm doing, but it's like, you know, you have your own um, specific situation and philosophizing is about generalizing. So you kind of get out of your specific situation. You think about cooperation or you think of trust in general and then you come back to your specific situation and that really helps you know widen your perspective about what you think of this concept and there's another really important thing about that kind of workshop is that when you talk about in general what it means to cooperate or to give or receive trust everybody is on an equal basis whether I am the boss or I'm, you know, at the, at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, I am your equal in this discussion that we are going to have with regard to trust, because trust has to do with my human condition. It doesn't have to do with my position in the company or in, in the workplace. So that's what I do uh, to respond to this, uh, this challenge. Yeah, that I, mentioned. I see. So I'm a, say I'm a leader. I'm, you know, I call on you. We have trust issues with my team. Maybe we, maybe actually we we have a we want to reach some outcome. You know, we want to perform better, and and then we know that the team there is some some trust issues. I I feel it. So I call you, and now you lead this workshop, and we discuss trust. That's why I understand. So we maybe share or the meaning. How does it happen? Can you just do a bit more, make it a bit concrete? Like now yes. we discuss we discuss trust, and then then what happened? Well, before that, just before that. I will have a discussion with this person who seems to think that there is a problem. Uh, the problem that this person uh, comes to me with, for example, trust, might not be the real problem. So I will do uh, a kind of philosophical discussion with that person to try to identify really the issue that is at stake. Um, so let's say that the issue is trust. Um, first of all, I... I share a few uh, philosophical considerations about the concept of trust, right? It looks like a, a small conference, if you like, 15, 20 minutes of conference on uh, the, the, the philosophical aspects of trust. And then um, basically a, workshop, a philosophical workshop is a, um, it's a, it's a trip, it's a voyage Uh, through these three elements of philosophy that I told you about, questioning, reasoning, uh, or discussing, and conceptualizing. So there's always a moment when I ask everyone, okay, if you have a question about trust, if you have uh, an important question that you ask yourself, an, an assumption that you'd like to question, what would it be? 
And so people usually have a minute to formulate a question. And it's funny because it's not easy to formulate a question. First of all, because you've got millions of questions in your head and you need to choose one. And also because, um, you know, the, the important thing is to question um, what, is, uh, what is problematic about the concept. So what is problematic about trust? For example, a question could be, um, could I trust or is it possible to trust people I don't like? You know, I mean, you, you said that we had to bring reasoning back um, into the mm. workplace, but I think yeah. we should make place for emotions as well. You know, maybe I can't, I can't trust this person because I don't like this person and I've got no reason, but it's difficult for me to trust. So we'll, we'll discuss. And if, if this question is chosen for the dialogue, then we'll discuss the relationship between trust and feelings of, uh, you know, liking somebody or disliking somebody. So, I mean, the philosophical discussion that follows is really to try to, um, you know, put clarity in the concept. My assumption is that if you gain clarity in the thinking, then you gain clarity with regards to your action and to what you're going to be doing. Hmm. I love that because I, in my experience in, in our movement around collective intelligence, coaching, transformation, a, we are very inclusive and we tend to not challenge where people come from when they speak. Like whatever you say is valid because you're a human being. And um, there is a lot of there is there is a lot of greatness into that because that's yeah that is inclusive, but there are down, downsides to it as well, where we are uh, accepting um, inputs, insights that are may may not be valid in like just in the logical perspective, or maybe if we challenge that person, that person don't really mean that, and I find we often lack of strengths into reasoning. And what I really loved about your approach is that you're saying really, well, wait a minute, it's okay. We can, we can have a conversation. We can build this collective intelligence. We can in interact, but let's challenge ourselves as we speak, as we think. And it's like you're raising the bar for everyone to kind of show up at its best and to really think twice before you speak. And, and as a practice, I find it very healthy and very new. So uh, um, yeah, just, just wanted to make this point. Um, um, yeah, I maybe, think yeah. Um, um, I, I think that people realize when they uh, think together, it's a very powerful moment because they realize that they uh, get richer by the other by the uh, by the the thoughts of the other people around the table, and because we don't discuss specific work situations, there's no. Um, uh, well, I try to, I, I try to uh, diminish, if you like, the 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 um, the power, the the potential power issues that can exist within a team. That's what I was explaining earlier. You know, I try, I try to, to to facilitate workshops to make everyone feel that they are on an equal basis and that we are all intelligent. Um, and we all like. I, I think that as human beings, we all enjoy. Thinking. I mean, that's that's a typical human being uh, yeah. type of activity, right? We like thinking. We like discussing. We like reasoning. And it's yeah. it's it's sometimes it's a bit difficult to reason correctly. But then when we gain clarity, it's like you know, um, it, it's 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 uh, it's immensely joyful to to you know understand, gain clarity. And I think that one of the reasons for which 
people sometimes don't get along in teams. It's not necess necessarily that there's you know, huge problems between them, but it's also because they don't understand each other. So you talk about inclusion, but do I understand the same thing as you do? And in a normal conversation, would I spend time asking you, what do you actually mean by inclusion? Mm -hmm. Because inclusion can mean lots of different things. Mm -hmm. And what difference does it, what, what, how, uh, you know, how is it different from diversity, for example? Mm -hmm. um, what's the difference between uh, empathy and kindness and sympathy? Mm. Why is it important to ask ourselves what these words mean? It's because we use them all the time. And so by using words, we create realities. I think we need to be conscious of that. Okay, can you tell us, uh, uh, that's great. Just wait a minute before we move into concepts and how we create reality with words. Because uh, this is very important. If you want to work in a collective, if you want to lead teams, lead change, we need to create agreements. We need to agree on the future we're building together. So the words are key. So maybe we, we just hold on on that. I just, just posing on this first part, um, what is the, um, like someone listening to this podcast that is maybe a change agent or leader, what can they, what can we do? Uh, uh, this, this challenging ourselves in, in, uh, in reasoning and in our conversations, what, what could be a simple practice that someone just can take away from, from that? Is there, is there any idea on that? Like what, how can we apply that? Like on daily basis or in a team? But to what kind of situations? Well, say I'm a, like, You know, I'm working in a company, I'm a change agent or I lead a team. And now I'm listening to you and I think it's great, but I just would like to say, okay, what can I do with that? So what, what, would, be, what would be a simple practice uh, for anyone to maybe take, take away this, this idea of, and put in practice this idea of, uh, let's be a little bit more demanding on each other when it comes to our, you know, our conversations or our reasoning in a collective, how to do that so it's not too offensive. You know, like it's not too uh, rigid. How can we be fluid and, and demanding? I, I want to answer that. You, you know that philosophers never give answers, right? <laughs> okay, that's... No. Okay, uh, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll give an answer, but you, you'll see. Um, it, it's, it's not easy to answer your question because um, I, I would need, I guess, a, a specific situation. But I could say, I could say, because I've talked about it, I could say, ask more questions. Mm. And it's not okay. ask more questions just for the simple fact of asking more questions. But for instance, somebody asks you to do something and you don't really know why you have to do it, but somebody just asks you to do it. And so it's a kind of pause that I could suggest, pause and question right? Mm. If you don't understand why you don't, why you should do this, and then, you know, what may, why is it that you are asking me to do this? You know, to try to put a little bit of uh, uh, meta thinking, if you like, into daily life. We love answers. We love solutions. Uh, we talk about solutions-oriented uh, companies, solutions-oriented culture, and I think that's good, but... Um, I think it's important to put a little bit more questioning, i.e. just to make sure that before looking for solutions, we are answering the right problem. Mm. So a second question I could give you mm. is, you know, and, and for, for, the, for those who are listening to us is, well, 
what is the problem with so-and-so? Mm. I love that question. You know, somebody asks you to do something or somebody gives you, a, you're, you're, you know, you're in a conversation with someone. And, but what's the problem with that? Because if there's mm. no problem, you know, let, let's just um, move on. Yeah. So we need and to the, understand what the problem is. Yeah. Yeah, there is, there is a way to ask questions that is... Uh generally interested in the you know the causes the roots causes of a whatever problem That's and right. not to engage on the surface and and i think the formulation of questions is also key i think you're very keen on that yeah that's right and i really uh i advise everyone who's listening to us to be attentive to the questions that you ask mm. do you uh, first of all do you ask many questions you could do this tomorrow for example you go back to work and um, see what you do with your colleagues. Do you ask them a lot of questions? Hmm. What kind of questions do you ask them? Is it questions, operational questions, practical questions? Is it um, emotional questions? Is it questions uh, about what they think about inclusion, trust, or whatever other concepts? You know, what kind of questions do you ask? I think that that would be an interesting um, um, exercise. What are the good questions? What a good question is. Um, a good question I think is a question that helps the other person think about something they hadn't thought about before Mm. Um, a good question is also a question that helps solve a problem Um, a good question is a question you don't have an, an immediate answer for. You know, you know when somebody asks you a good question, right? Yeah. You know it. I mean, you can feel it actually, mm. you know? When somebody asks you a good question, we, it makes you think, it makes you pause, you know? It makes you pause, yeah. it makes you think. And, and you're like, yeah, nobody had asked me this question before. Thank you for asking me this question, right? When you get a good question, it's, yeah. I mean, you just love it's the other person for it. It's a gift, exactly. I, I as, as we did this workshop together the other day, um, I had a how to question, how to do this, right? Mm. And we all, all have a how to do that. It's often the case when uh, most of the change uh, leaders, they are, they're asking themselves, how do I lead this change? How do I put this in place? How do I put in place this new culture or this new organization or this new business model, whatever? And, uh, and you, you, you told me, well, if you have a how to question, it's based on an assumption that actually you can and that you should. And I found this was amazing. So, so, uh, so I was like, wow. So you want to say a word on that? I, th- I thought it was, uh, it, was, it was very profound. And uh, so you say, start with the why. So back to Simon Sinek. But a few words on this, maybe. Yeah. Um... Of course, a lot of our questions are loaded with assumptions. Mm. So if I ask you, I'm going to come and visit you in Brussels, and I ask you, how do I come to Brussels? Well, hopefully, um, we've already resolved the issue of why I should come to Brussels and should I come to Brussels? And, you know, is that a good idea or not? And now I just need to know if I'm going to drive or take the train or cycle or walk or whatever, you know. And so there are some how questions that are great and that are very useful, right? For other kinds of subjects, for example, how can we cooperate better, right? This type of question 
um, but it's just like the how to get to Brussels question, um, will give answers that are a kind of list of answers, right? How do I get to Brussels? Well, uh, train, uh, cycling, walking, car. Okay, the question, when you've answered the question, it, it's finished, you know, you can, you can throw the question to the bin in a way, mm-hmm. right? Um, how to better cooperate? Oh, well, you can do this, you can do a super seminar, you can do da da blah, 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 etc. right? But with this question, I am not going to the root of the problem. You see, I don't understand with this question, what is the problem? So if somebody had a, you know, how do you, how can we better cooperate? First of all, I would ask them a question, which could be something like, well, you know, why do you think you don't cooperate well? In a way, it's a, what's the problem question, right? And the person might answer, well, because, um, you know, with lockdown, we haven't seen each other for over a year. Okay, now I, I will transform the how to better cooperate question into, well, can we cooperate if we don't see each other? And then we'll have a discussion about cooperation and its relationship to presence, right? To the fact of being together, you know? And I, I, I think that's a question that opens up mm-hmm. a richer discussion mm-hmm. than just how to cooperate and just give tools and solutions, right? Thank you. So, so um, you brought the you you approached the assumption. We discussed assumption. We we you were mentioning earlier the uh, the the importance of the words. So maybe back to that, uh, the importance of the words. And again, they help us create meaning, but they also help us to build something. To you know, we call those agreements. Those agreements. They are the the world we are building to live into and to reach the outcomes we're trying to get. Uh, without an agreement, there is no organization. There is no, there is no, it's difficult to build a team if we don't you know, have the same meaning for the word. So a lot of time teams you know, spend together when we do team building or we do, uh, or even, even we do strategy work is to align on, on the meaning of what we're saying. Where are we, mm-hmm. what, what do we mean by this? So like on words. So, so I think you, you, you have some perspective on that. I just wanted to maybe go in this chapter, open this chapter. Yeah, I think we, we think in words. So we create a world with the words that we use. Um, and words have um, direct effectiveness. So... You know, there's a a philosopher who wrote a a book about that. He said there are um, performative words. For example, the priest um, at at the church who says, I marry you, the second before you're not married, and the second after you're married. Right? If I say to someone, I love you, it's just a word, but I am creating a situation. I'm creating a world. If I'm saying, I trust you, I'm creating a certain reality. And you know that very well with children, because you know that the trust that you give to children when you tell them something, when they're trying to do something, and the words that you use to encourage them create a certain reality. 
in which they are able or not to do things. So words are extremely important. And you know, there is a this song in French, you know, parole, 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 parole. Uh, no, actually words are important, right? They are not just flying out in the air. We remember them. And actually in our own lives, we remember the, the good words that we received in the personal sphere, but also in the professional sphere. I remember from my managers, the words that had an impact on me in the positive and in the negative sense as well. That's what you say, just make me remember my, actually the beginning of the Bible is about words and about uh, creation is made by words. And when you, you refer to the marriage or uh, declaring, you, declaring something in words, make it actually somehow exist. And uh, we, you know, there's, there's a power in, in, in formulating um, what we intend, you know, what we want. And by clarifying the words, uh, putting words on those, on those objectives, on those wishes, intentions, that is actually uh, putting in motion something that that help us to reach it. And that's very strange. Maybe one day we would understand more the science of it, but there is something that in everybody's experience we all know. And that's not just in, in people's experience, it's actually in the in the religion and also, also in the law, because uh, as you say, the, the mayor can marry you and, and by his words, you, 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 uh, you get married. And actually just, by the way, the, I think it's the spouses that by saying, I marry you, they become married. So that's the power of creation. Yeah. And that's recognized and acknowledged by the, the, the other. So, so, so um, yeah, two words, we are creators. That's right. We are creators and uh, we, we, we forget that. We forget mm -hmm. that we have a huge power and that we don't use that power very well. And so that's a good way of summarizing it. Mm -hmm. Summarizing it. Thank you, uh, Michael, yeah, because yeah. Um, my job, I could see my job as, um, you know, giving power to people by making them aware of their own power when they are using certain words. Now, uh, that said, I think, I think it's important to also think about the coherence between what I say and what I do, mm -hmm. because I find that the problem in organizations is often that words are said without much um, sincerity or authenticity, you know, like all this talk about values. And if you talk about values, if you say, I want to be this or I am this, uh, we are this, uh, if you are not actually being that, then words become completely shallow. Mm -hmm. And then you don't know what they mean anymore. Uh, for example, uh, courage, you know, this is a value that I see in certain organizations, courage. But concretely on the ground, um, this organization asks you to take no risks, um, to, for example, just, just that, to take no risk. But how can you have courage if you don't take risks, right? So you, you, you say the word courage, but then on the, on the you know, on day-to-day -day basis, you prevent people from actually being courageous. So then that word becomes shallow. And so I guess another way of presenting my job would be to, um, yeah, give more substance to the words that we use, make them more active. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I was just wondering as listening to you the uh, so, so you're saying 
you the the, the we use the, the power, the energy of the words. We use the power of the words uh, if you are congruent with the words in our action. So the alignment, action, I mean, what you say and what you do, the more alignment, the more power. And, and um, so that could be another practical tip maybe for our audience and uh, ask ourselves, you know, how we actually implementing what we're saying. It's, it's a very old question. We all know this question, but it's, it's a, it's a very it's a very profound one. What, what do you what do you think of those uh, values? Oh, everybody loves to. I mean, many other companies they want to have their values and they on the and there it's a bit of a fashion around that. Maybe it's a bit less now. Now people do purpose, purpose statement, and you know, manifesto. We did that at Fabric. Uh, so, what what would be your advice on those things, on those uh, statements that a company like to do around values? Because they are trying hard. They are trying to bring the meaning. The, the intention is good, but often, as you said, there is a mismatch and there is no, it's not put in, it's not, you know, enacted. So what's your take on that? I think uh, values, I mean, the thinking that goes into values and um, purpose and all that is very useful if it helps you decide. So for example, values will be useful if they help you make a good decision in difficult times. And so just to give you an example, a few years ago, um, we had planned with my um, work partner to organize a, a big party for all our clients and all our partners. Um, and we planned this, you know, six, seven months uh, ahead. And then the date came closer. And actually, it was a difficult time for day. And we thought, you know, should we keep this party, you know, because it was quite a lot of money for us to spend. And we didn't have, I mean, we didn't say this to our clients at the time, now I can say it, but we didn't even have enough money to pay our salaries at the end of the month, right? And we were throwing this huge party, you know, it was kind of like, oh, let's just spend money, you know, and uh, so we sat down and we thought, okay, what are our values? We had thought about our values before. And one of the words that had come up is generosity. And so we thought, how can we use that value to help us decide? And we thought, okay, probably canceling the party would probably be a good short-term business decision for a business, okay? Because, well, we didn't have any contracts in the, in the near future. But we thought generosity is really our value. We want to thank all the people who, since the creation of Tay, uh, believed in philosophy, believed that it had a place in business in their own companies, and really helped uh, develop philosophy uh, in their own business. And so it was a way of thanking them. And also, we thought in a more long-term way, you know, generosity is also about, you know, planting little grains and you don't know how it's going to grow. You never know how things are going to grow. But we wanted to give this as a gift. And we had the kind of belief without expecting anything concrete, you know, oh, if we have this party, then we'll have clients, you know, next week. We didn't think that in that way, but we thought we'll generate something good if we keep this party. And so we kept it. 
we had the party and it was a bit strange because it was, you know, we invite, invited like a hundred people and, a, and we had so much fun and people loved it. And we did a philosophical workshop with a hundred people on love, which is a theme that we never wow. do with businesses. Yeah. And it was the 14th of July <laughs> of uh, February, sorry, Valentine's Day, right? Nice. Valentine's Day workshop on love to celebrate philosophy and thinking together. And then, of course, a few months later, you know, it was an opportunity to see people we hadn't seen in a long you time. You didn't go bankrupt, so it, by the way. And we didn't go bankrupt. We just, you know, we just um, cut back our salaries uh, for a few months. And, and then that's fine. That's not a problem. If you're an entrepreneur, you, you know that you'll have to do that at some time. And it's, it's okay, in fact. What is the outcome of this, uh, Ivan, and this story? What happened then? Well, um, it really was an opportunity for us to um, put energy in a way, put mm -hmm. energy in all the relationships that we valued. Um, and so, yeah, in the months, uh, the months that, that followed, um, you know, people we hadn't spoken to for a year or two, we spoke to them again. And yeah, I guess that a year after, there's lots of things that came out of this mm -hmm. party, you know, but we didn't mm. know exactly what would come out or especially if we did something on love, you know, business people would, could, they could have said, you know, but I mean, what's this link with it, with a company, with the corporate sector or Yeah. And there was no link. We just wanted them to have a good time. Full stop. Yeah. And we were absolutely sure that if nothing happened, that was a good thing too, right? So just to come back to your question, if values help us decide, then I think they're great. But oftentimes you have values. And then when you need to make a, like a serious decision, you know, you put your values aside and you, you, you know, um, um, CEOs and um, board of directors and, um, you know, management committees, they should have their values there in front of them, especially when they have a, a, bad, a difficult decision to make, you know, and ask themselves, you know, are we actually being coherent with our values? Can our values help us decide this way or the other? So in that sense, I think values are useful mm -hmm. or, or, or your purpose, you know, um, Our purpose, one of our purpose is to, um, you know, bring philosophy to, to, the, to the wider public because we believe philosophy is a common good, right? So one of our activities, our main activity is to work with businesses. But the question we have, now we have written this purpose, is what do we do for the greater good outside the sphere of businesses? So we do things with schools on a voluntary basis. We, we do other things, you know, that are mm -hmm. just, just because we think it's good. Yeah. I love the idea that you re, how to put this, to um, get back or to, to claim back something that we've had for a long time, that is, that is this thinking, that is this philosophy, but to claim it back in, in, in our culture, in our today, in you know, culture of today, in our, in our In, in the, and also in the way we want to build the future and to claim this back, I think it's, a, it's also a way to reconnect to some roots, uh, to the best of our past. Uh, there is something around that. I just want to say, yeah, you want, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think there is a lot of um, joy as well in mm -hmm. rediscovering old philosophers. Yes. Uh, you know, all this heritage that we've got, all this legacy that we've got. Uh, sometimes they wrote 
in a bit of a difficult way. So it takes a bit of time, you know, to actually understand them, read them, a bit of patience. And so our job is also to make that accessible, um, you know, and I, still, we, we still need to be um, demanding, you know, not to be too simple. We still need to keep that, that side of philosophy, which is, which is demanding for the, for the thought, um, but to make it accessible too because it is so helpful, you know? I mean, I'm really into stoic philosophy. I've been into that for the past five, six years and it actually helps me live my life. Mm -hmm. You actually wrote a book uh, on, uh, you did this work on uh, studying uh, philosophers and translating their ideas, their thoughts into something accessible for everyone and practical. And you call it managing with philosophers, six practices to you know, better uh, be and act at work at work and maybe tell us about these guys that you are in your book those philosophers these people uh, and um, what do they say uh, you have created by the way uh, also something i've found very very innovative uh, we all know psychological profile and uh, mbti and these kind of things and you have developed based on philosophers so you will explain that a model to understand What, what kind of, what philosopher would be your profile? You belong to which one? In mm. the way you think, in the way you ask questions. I found very interesting to, for people to kind of uh, refer to a school of thought, if I can say that, or to a philosopher that would kind of embody their approach, their, pro their lens on the world. And because it enables us to see that there are other lenses on the world, there are other ways to think, and that would help us to stretch, stretch out of our comfort zone and to kind of grow. So I said a lot of things now. So, so maybe uh, if you could present a bit those, those philosophers and, and what you take from them and how you can apply it. Yeah. So there's five guys and a woman. <laughs> Sorry. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and the, the, why did I, uh, why did I uh, write this book? I, I thought, okay, imagine I'm somebody uh, working in a, in a company, people who are my clients, and I don't really have eight hours a day to read philosophy, right? I don't have that much time. So I, I started taking my philosophy books, you know, like that. I said, okay, I'll give you one hour. Right. I opened up the book, you know, I flipped the book, read a few pages. And if, to, if after one hour, I thought, okay, this person has something interesting to tell me about management or work related issues, because obviously they've got lots of interesting things to say, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, in another way. But if I am a manager or a leader, do they have something interesting to tell me? Yeah. So that's how I chose these uh, six philosophers. Um, Epictetus, because Epictetus is a Stoic, a, philosopher, a Stoic philosopher, and that um, Stoic philosophy really is about distinguishing what depends on you and what doesn't depend on you. And really, at the end of the day, there's not much that depends on you, but what really depends on you is how you use your reasoning, how you use your capacity to think and to judge. So I found that really helpful in the workplace. Um, there's another philosopher, for example, um, Spinoza. Spinoza tells us that we'd like to think that we are creatures of, creatures of reason, but we are 
um, creatures of emotions, in fact, above all. And then we think, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? So we need to understand, and why do we suffer? We suffer because we have all these emotions, you know, that overwhelm us. And he, he tells us, well, that's okay. That's just part of who we are. And what reason, the way in which reason can be useful is to help us understand these emotions. We are never going to suppress them. We can't, you know, we can't say, oh, I want to never be angry. You know, I, I want to suppress that emotion. It's there. It, it actually doesn't depend on you to actually feel anger. But what depends on you is what you're going to do with it, right? And Spinoza tells us, well, we can't get rid of emotions, but we can try to understand them. I think that's quite a helpful tip when you're in, a, in an organization. That's a big door, uh, a big avenue to... Uh, a lot of practices I'm thinking of nonviolent communication, for instance. That's right. Uh, that is uh, that is it's a door to that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That it's it's um, it, it, there is a definite link between what Spinoza writes and and nonviolent communication. You're right. Um, and then a third one, for example, um, whom I I I, um, I put in the book is Hannah Arendt. Um, so Hannah Arendt, you know. In fact, she, you know, she, um, she covered um, the trial of Adolf Eichmann in 1961. Adolf Eichmann is a, one of the Nazi, um, Nazi guys who organized uh, the transport of the Jews to the concentration camps. And then he fled to Argentina and then his trial took place in Jerusalem in 1961. And so the New Yorker asked Hannah Arendt to go cover the trial and write a report on that. And what does she find out? She wrote, listen, you know what? This guy, he's not, he's not a demon. So the whole Jewish community was very shocked by that. She said, no, he's not a demon. His problem is that he doesn't think about what he does. He said, Eichmann, I just obeyed orders. I did my work very well. I was very efficient. I was very performant. And it's true. He was. That's the same language we use every day. And it's true. He was mm -hmm. performant in relation to the objectives that had been given to him and that he never questioned. So Hannah Arendt, you know, coined this expression, which is the banality of evil. The banality of evil is the fact that in certain situations of pressure from authority or group pressure or time pressure, you just stop thinking about the ethical dimensions of your actions. I think that's a really important point in organizations because given a specific situation, you can either frame it in operational terms as Eichmann did, or you can frame it in ethical terms and it's not the same thing. Hmm. I can give you a very concrete example about discussion I had uh, with one of my clients last week. He says, I'm, I'm wondering how we are going to organize um, coming back to the workplace in September, right? With everybody, you know, working from home. Um, and some people want to come back. Some people don't want to come back. And so he's asking himself, should I, you know, should I force people to come back? Should I put two days or three days or whatever, you know? You can frame that. This is the way I've just explained it, is framing it in operational terms. It's how do we get people coming back to work? If you want to frame it in ethical terms, you have to ask the question differently. You know, 
And it would be, well, why do I want to get people back to work? What do we have to, you know, what is it, what is work? Why do we have to be together? What can we do together um, that we can't do when, you know, we're at a distance? Um, it, it questions the relationship that the company has towards freedom, you know? Can you force somebody to come to work? It questions the relationship between people and space, mm -hmm. you know, um, and relationships. So you see, that's another way of framing. And this is what Anna Arendt tells us. Think about the ethical dimensions of your actions. So we have, we have covered Epictetus, Spinoza, and Arendt, and there are three more. That's right. Oh, I, Tell I, us about them. Okay, great. So then there's Bergson, Henri yeah. Bergson, who's a French philosopher. And he tells us about intuition. intuition. Yeah. He says that um, in the modern world, we've given a lot of importance to intelligence. But he says intelligence is just one way of knowing the world. Hmm. Intuition is the other. And we've given a very small space to intuition because you know, with intelligence, you analyze, um, uh, you, you, you make um, relations between elements, you know, and then it helps you uh, reason. Basically, intelligence is about reasoning, right? And you have access to truth or you have access to, uh, to, to, to something through reasoning. Whereas intuition is a kind of direct access to things. You know, when we have intuitions, but we can't really explain them, but we just know it's a kind of feeling in a way. It's a feeling mixed with some form of intelligence because you can't have an intuition on everything, right? I am not a, um, I am not a ski champion, right? So I couldn't have an intuition on what I should do in, circumstance, in certain circumstances, right? But um, what am I very good at? Um, <laughs> Okay, in a, in a place where I'm very good at something, then I could have an intuition about what should be done. So Bergson uh, tells us that intuition gives us direct access to meaning and that we should make more place to, to intuition. We shouldn't put intelligence aside, but we should make them work together. It makes me think, I don't know, I'm sure you're familiar with Wilbur and the modern philosophers around the integral movement. And they, one of the things they're saying is that the, the reality is not just external, it's not just what you can see or you know, access to objective experience and reputable experience. It's also a true subjective experience. So we kind of through our intuition, our emotions to, to, our, to a, a first person experience, experience to what I personally, subjectively can understand there is some access to another part of reality there. So it's, is, it, is it related? I mean, I guess it's related. It makes me think of that. Maybe, maybe a word on, on, on this integral philosophy. Where, where, what is your take on that? I don't, I, I don't think I know enough really to have something interesting to say about it. But um, um, what you've just said about, you know, what is reality? Maybe I have something to say mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. Because um, I am showing you a, a water jar, mm -hmm. right? It's real. Mm -hmm. You see it and I see the same thing, right? Um, but now, if I ask you, you know, is this water jar full or is it empty? That's a question of perspective, really, and of representation, of how I represent uh, reality to myself. So there are th certain things that we can objectively agree on. But if you think about it, most of the things in life 
or not like that. And that's why it's so difficult to work together and do things together is because we don't really, we have different perspectives and different ways of representing the world. And that's why we need to discuss our representations. You are going to tell me it's empty. I'm going to tell you, no, it's actually quite full. Okay, so what does emptiness mean to you, Mikael? Mm. For me, you know, fullness is this and emptiness is that. And maybe we can, by discussing, we can agree you know, on, on a common representation about, you know, the water that's in this jar, right? So, um, yeah, I think we need to and have more discussions about that. Especially when it comes to the experience we have in a group, the experience of each other, uh, the relationship, the field of relationship. And uh, we have very different experiences of uh, how, you know, they, what, what is a good vibe, or bad vibe, for instance, yeah. how we feel comfortable and comfortable with each other in a team or in a, in a personal or professional relationship. So, so the access to what's going on in a, in a, in a team, there's there's a lot of under of currents, uh, polarities at play. People comfortable and uncomfortable, different things. All these things they are accessible only through subjective experience. Only I have a, my view on this reality, and you have a different one. And then now we need to make sense of it at some point if we want to move forward together. And uh, exactly. that, that, that is very interesting to explore because we, there's not really a way, there is no to measure it or to, there is no a meter or an indicator. It's only what we perceive. That's right. And that's why we need to have these discussions about the way we perceive the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, to create common ground. So the last two ones. So then we have uh, Socrates and yes. Krishn Krishnamurti. I'll start with Krishnamurti because um, he's, um, he's an Indian philosopher and thinker. And um, he talks about um, meditation in a, in, in a certain way, which I find interesting. Um, he, turns, he talks about meditation as internal observation. So he says, well, to meditate, you don't need to sit in a lotus, you know, and have a, the little candles around you, although that can be fine. Um, he said, you can actually uh, meditate and you, and, you, and you should actually do that. And we'll say why in a, in a few minutes, um, meditate on a constant basis. So for example, we're talking together, I can fully be in the conversation with you and at the same time, observe the way that I'm talking, observe, you know, what I'm feeling, observe, you know, all the thoughts that I have, but which I don't say. You see what I mean? So it's, it's basically experiencing reality on a double level, what we are creating together and what is happening on a sort of meta level. And he says that he, he's got a quite a strong, um, strong argument because he says, if we have wars, if we have conflict, it's because we don't observe what's happening inside of us. You know, we, uh, we, we all have something inside us when there is conflict, for example, that wants to, you know, destroy somebody else, right? We've all experienced that. We all this, have this part in us for sure. Right? This you little devil or this yes. monster or this thing, you know, even with your kids, you know, or your friends, the people you love, sometimes you just want to, you know, throw, throw them out of the window. Of course, you, you don't say that. And then when somebody else acts really badly, you say, oh, this person acts really badly, you know, and this is wrong, and da, 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 you know. And so Krishnamurti says, well, if we could just see that we all have this inside of us and observe you know, the way we think internally, then maybe we'd have a bit more peace in the world. 
So I found that yeah. quite powerful. Yeah, very. And and the last one is Socrates, of course. I mean, Socrates. Just by know, the way, just a, just yeah. hold on. That, that, that's the. Uh, that's my. I mean, that would be my definition of empathy: to recognize what's alive in the other person, uh, and connect that I have this part. I can have this alive in me too. Not that I agree with what you're saying, what you're doing, but but I can I can uh, like connect to it. Uh, so like it, you were speaking about listening earlier, uh, or no, actually about questioning. But with question come listening. Uh, yes. You ask questions. So I guess it comes with and listen to the answers. But if you listen to the others and by, um, connecting on their what's alive in them uh, in the moment they are speaking, uh, uh, that that might be a way to connect uh, at a much deeper level, not just on the world level, but more on a on a more human level. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The last one was Socrates. Yeah, Socrates. Well, the you know, good Socrates, old friend. Uh, the good old friend. Uh, he's the old guy with the beard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and, and people call him, you know, the father of philosophy. He was uh, Plato's teacher, um, and basically, well, what? Why did I choose Socrates? Because he's telling us interesting things about dialogue. You know, and how conversation, the conversation that we have together, can help us think better and that thinking is not just uh, an individual and solitary activity it's a discussion so it's a discussion within yourself within the different part with the different parts of yourself but it's also a discussion with other people and that's why Plato wrote the dialogues you know Socrates never wrote anything so it's it's Plato who wrote dialogues in which Socrates is talking to someone and usually it's a person uh, coming to, to see Socrates and they've got a problem, right? And Socrates doesn't give any answer. He just asks questions to help this like person. You. Yeah, exactly. To help this person understand, you know, his problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, and lots of philosophers have said that if you understand what the problem is, then the solution is very simple, yeah. in fact. Yeah. The reason why solutions are so complicated or you can't find them is because the, the problem is not well posed in a way yeah you're asking the right questions okay so uh flora it's really a pleasure to have you i think we could go on and on i see the time we need to end this conversation i would like to uh close here first of all thank you very much but before we close i would like to ask, give you a, a little challenge and i'm sure you will be up to uh, no doubt about it i would like to um as i like to ask to our guest is just to uh give you two minutes Six, 120 seconds um, of uh, it's your moment and you I'm going to cut my mic and remove my headset and that's you alone with the audience and you say whatever you want you can share a story present another philosopher that you want present your next book that is your I know your that is coming up soon or um, or stay silent and meditate and uh, share this moment with us if you want. Or that's really, there's no pressure, but that's a moment for you. So are you up for that? Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to cut my mic now and remove my headset and I give you 120 seconds. So I, I think I'd like to use this time to share um a philosophical experience that I had uh, the first time I traveled to India. Why was it a philosophical experience? Um, I was 20. 
there was no internet, um, there were no cell phones. Um, and when I arrived in this country, all my senses were upside down, smells, the language that people used, um, what people said, you know, I had really a hard time understanding what people were telling me when there was a yes, apparently there was a yes, but in fact it was a no, a no was a yes. And so in fact, all the assumptions that I had on life and on how relationships worked were just turned upside down. And I didn't immediately think that it wasn't a philosophical experience, but I thought about that afterwards. And I thought, actually, we have philosophical experiences all the time, but we just don't see them. What is a philosophical experience? Well, it's just experiencing the world, relationships, situation, uh, situations, and just watching the assumptions with which we think about them and with which we enter into, um, into relationship with, with the world and with other people. So maybe I'd like to leave you with this invitation, um, which is to look, um, look at the situations you experience and the relationships that you experience in a philosophical way by you know, questioning the way you look at them and questioning the way you think about them. And here I am back. So, Flora, thank you very much for your time, for being with us tonight. Thank uh, you very much, Mikael. I had a really good time. I really enjoyed just talking to you. And, uh, and um, hopefully uh, people who listen to us will, you know, find it interesting. And Jay, I, I hope to. <laughs> uh, all the best uh, for Tay and for you and the launch of your book. Your books are now in French. I hope you will be soon translated in English and accessible to the global audience. Um, thank you everyone for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.